Time travel is possible. This episode of the To Die For Daily podcast is brought to you by Clio Global. With the muse of history at its heart, Clio's mission is to recreate the past's aromas. Visit clio.global for more information. You and I are usually like so good. I mean, right, to the right. point where like people think that you should co-host my podcast. I mean, people <laughs> are like, they never want you to leave. Love the British monarchy. You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. It is the fourth and the biggest and the greatest do let's have another drink happy hour with Gareth Russell. The book is available now in America. Are you so happy? I'm really thrilled. I mean, this book is deliberately written as a kind of love letter to people who love Downton Abbey, The Crown, Royal Trivia, uh, and Royal History. It's written as sort of perfect for um, discussing over a drink, dinner, Christmas, anything like that. And the the idea of it sort of being not just about the Queen Mother, but as a love letter to people who share those interests just means I'm so, so excited it's in America. First, I wanted to ask you, yeah. How, what what sparked this idea? How did you come up with the idea to write about the Queen Mother? I had wanted to write the book for years. I mean, it, it was a long time ago I had had this idea I wanted to. And really, um, fortunately, my old Sunday school teacher ran the royal household in when they were in Northern Ireland. And... Um, I mentioned this to him and he said, look, tomorrow, you know, his name was David Anderson. And he said, Gareth, tomorrow, this is 2014. Tomorrow is not promised. Interview me today. <gasps> and I had about five hours of tapes of his memories of, of the Queen Mother when she was in Northern Ireland and when he met her in England as well. And, and David passed away three years later before I started writing this book. So I'd had those tapes for years and years. Uh, and so it was something that was always in the back of my mind. And then, you know, I'd done a series of sort of big and serious history books for a while. And I wanted to do something that was still well researched, but was lighter and was more conversational in tone. Gareth, I noticed uh, Michelle Dockery in the acknowledgments. I am a huge Downton Abbey fan. I I know you are too. Um, But what? How did? How did she end up in your acknowledgments? Yeah, Michelle's probably my most like obnoxiously talented friend. Like it's just at some point, it's it's upsetting. um, Just how many things she's good at. Michelle. was part of the conversation that kickstarted this book. You know, I'd said I'd obviously planned to to write it uh, years ago. I had shelved it. I just finished this project and we were at a mutual friend's wedding and I was uh, talking with Michelle, her now fiancé Jasper, and our friend Sol Goldberg. And we were talking about what we'd been up to. It was a beautiful summer's day. And I mentioned, you know, that I... um you know, loved the gin that we were having. It was very crisp and fresh. And we started talking a little bit about gin and what we'd been working on. And uh, the Queen Mother sort of came up through the avenue of gin, as I think she would have wanted, frankly. And um, Naturally. And it, and absolutely. And, and it was, it was Michelle and Jasper and I were talking and, and Jasper asked this really kind of brilliantly, in, he's, I mean, he's wonderful, but he asked, you know, 
sort of give us sort of the elevator pitch of what is it that you like about her. And I gave two stories, one serious and one funny. And they both reacted in such a way that I thought, oh, well, you know, this has gone down really well, um, almost as well as the gin I've, uh, that, I've, that, I've, <laughs> that I've taken. Maybe this is an idea, you know, to turn into a book. And so armed with that, um, the next day I was in London having lunch with my editor and I said, what about this idea to do like a kind of conversational book about the Queen Mother? So, yeah, it started in that conversation with Michelle, Jasper and Soul. Um, that's an incredible story. Yeah, no, it's, um, it, 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 see, it was sort of a bizarre, I was funny, I was talking about it with Saul last week and it was just a very, it's very strange to think of these little conversations where you're, you know, surrounded by people who ask great questions that it kind of gets your mind going and moving. And I think that it's just very strange to think that, that so much flowed as a consequence from that day. So it was, yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful. And, um, do let's yeah, have a are. drink inspired by Lady Mary Crawley. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've already sent her two copies of the book. I might have to send her something else, something like more substantial. <laughs> no, I'm sure I've, after reading the book, I can tell you right now that one copy was sufficient enough. It's incredible. Yeah. One no, of my favorite stories in the book. And we kind of have touched base about, you know, the Queen Mother's love life and her youth, who was trying to court her. And I've heard a million times that the, you know, the the spare had uh, proposed to her and she turned him down. But you go into this really great story about the Queen Mother, who's not the Queen Mother at the time. She was kind of fascinated by Anne Boleyn. And she mm. went to stay at her childhood home. And yeah. can you tell me, I'll let you go into the story, but can you tell me, did she realize that there was this chess game going on behind her back mm. and that Queen, the, the Queen Mary was strategizing all of this, the, all of these instances to yeah. try to push them together to try to create this union? Did she, did she realize that? Well, look, what I will say is that's probably the most exciting single discovery in the book. I was able to get, you know, at a country home, she signed the guest book when you leave. And going through this for Hever Castle, which was many centuries ago, Anne Boleyn's childhood home, but in the 1920s was owned by the Astor family. And I was able to piece together what happened that weekend. I can also tell you quite excitingly that next spring I'll be working with... um heaver hopefully to to do something there to kind of celebrate this discovery and and make people aware that heaver has connections to anne boleyn and elizabeth bowes lyon wow. so basically she has turned bertie the spare uh down and she goes to stay and this elizabeth is twice Bo now right this is twice this is, this is second yeah down. second time she's turned him down and she's very unhappy about it because she writes this really moving letter when she says i'm you know, I'm actually upset to turn him down and I feel terrible and it must have been my fault. And I don't think she thought he was going to propose a second time. But because she went strategically, she's been invited to a wedding of a friend or of somebody right. she's not really friends with. Yeah, exactly. She was invited. She was invited to the wedding of his sister. And I don't think she pieced together that, that, that this was all plans to put her and Bertie back into the same room. So she... um 
she went to she went to Hever not long after this to sort of, and she went with her sister, um, Lady Mary Bowesline. By this point, she was Mary Elphinstone. But it was a big country house weekend. You'll have seen them in shows like Brideshead Revisited or Downton Abbey, and she went to stay there. And what became clear was that Queen Mary had spoken with the Astors before and that I went through this list and pieced everyone together and Elizabeth is surrounded by people who have links to Queen Mary at this weekend and it's after Heaver that she starts to soften on the idea of marrying into the royal family. I go into it more more in the book but I think all the evidence supports that there was a kind of, yes as she say, there was a chess game played at Heaver Castle with the Astors um, being pawns and knights moved by the Queen, Queen Mary, to get Elizabeth to say yes to marrying into the royal family. And I don't know if, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but it does feel like whenever she turns him down, she escapes to somewhere else. She needs a break. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if she's embarrassed or if she just wants to distance herself from the gossip, but... Yeah, in in your book, it does seem like every time she tells him no, she's off to. I think it was at Paris. So yeah, time one, first time she says no to him, she goes to Jazz Age Paris, which is a great place to lick your wounds. (laughs) Yeah, um, her one of her friends, Diamond Harding, which is one of my new favorite names, uh, (laughs) was the daughter of the British ambassador in Paris, so they could stay at the embassy as their base. And then they they had this great time sort of socializing with Hungarian socialites who had their coats made out of gardenias and going to nightclubs in Paris. And then the second time she goes to spend, when she turns him down a year later, she goes to spend time at country houses of friends like Hever Castle, which is fairly deep in the countryside in Kent. And by the way, for anyone regardless of whether you're interested more in 20th century high society or 16th century politics, Hever is out and out one of the most beautiful um, private homes and museums in the British Isles. It's just extraordinary. Have you posted that on your Instagram? I would need to. I probably, I have. I'm so... I've seen you post a lot of places on your Instagram. Yes, oh, Hever's definitely been on it. I probably word for word posted that and I just absolutely adore it. Okay, yeah, because I was going to say, I feel like I, I've seen something like that on your Instagram. So for people that are curious, go look at Gareth's Instagram because he visits these these beautiful venues all the time. And you can walk through them in his stories. And and so it's really fascinating to see these, these beautiful places through your eyes. Um, but yeah, I just thought that that story was so interesting. I had never heard before that... Um, the, that the queen was kind of working behind the scenes to ensure this. And you say in the book that she had this tough exterior that she yeah. was kind of considered cold. And so I would have never guessed that she, it was so important to her that she helped find Bertie. She mm. helped Bertie find a mate and Bertie must've really been set on Elizabeth. Oh, there was no one but Elizabeth. There was no one. Once Bertie had decided it was Elizabeth, that was it. He was absolutely besotted with her. And there's a great quote uh, about his mother, Queen Mary, that when she stood still, she looked like a Swiss mountain. And when she moved, she was like a battleship at full steam. She was a very intimidating person. But Mary, uh, Queen Mary did have this reputation of being incredibly tough and almost cold. But what I found in the while researching the book was this was um, 
an incredible, incredible woman who in many ways had ideas far ahead of her time. For instance, she had a cousin, Marie of Mecklenburg, who was a minor German princess who ended up uh, conceiving the illegitimate child of a palace footman. And it was very scandalous. But Mary uh, was convinced that this, you know, bear in mind, this is sort of the Victorian Edwardian period. This happened a few years before um, her trip to Hever. In the Victorian period, it was generally held to be the woman's fault. If oh, this I'm happens. sorry, it, it's right now. It's we consider that the woman's fault too. Just so you know, <laughs> things have changed so much. Watch, um, a, watch an episode of Maury. So, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so so let's just so it, from, it changes from Maury to Mary for this, <laughs> and um, this episode of Mary of Tech sees her um, take the travel under a fake name. She disguises herself as an Irish aristocrat called Lady Killarney. She boards an overnight train that takes her, um, she crosses the channel to France, heads up to Germany to see the girl. And when she speaks to her cousin, she is absolutely convinced that um, Marie of Mecklenburg has been groomed by this servant. And this servant is a much older married man. And he his job was to put out the oil lamps in this family's palace. And he had kind of used it to take advantage off um, a very sheltered uh, princess. And Marie um, is helped out of the scandal by the future Queen Mary, who helps her get the good medical care she needs. Um, they have the child. The child's put up for adoption. Marie is brought home. She's allowed to recuperate. And really, it was Mary who was instrumental in helping this German cousin at a time when a lot of people would have condemned her as the mm. one who was at fault. Wow, that's yeah. You don't go into those details in the book. That's an incredible story. Mm -hmm. You you kind of touch base on it and say she does have a big heart, um, but yeah. not to that extent. That's incredible. Wow, I I love that. I want to know more about that. That well, journey. I'm, I'm going to do a part. I'm, I, you know, I was so interested by it, and I was like, this isn't really. It's one of those things you find when you're doing a book like this, Kinsey, where it's so interesting, but it's not relevant enough to justify yeah. going in a book about Elizabeth. So I am. Um, next month going to be doing a podcast episode about it for single malt history because i think it is really interesting absolutely i can't wait for that episode oh thank you um and one of the other things that made me laugh in the book was you talk about something that the queen mother loved it was one part then two part and it floored oh. your friend you said it floored your friend to the point that yeah. he lost an entire day of his life trying to recuperate right can you, tell, can you explain that to me yeah, I had a few of them on uh, Friday night. Even, uh, yeah, <laughs> and um, I don't know. Saturday was just me praying for my own death. Um, so it's gin and Duboni. Duboni is a fortified. It's right over there in my drinks cabinet. It's just over that's, my shoulder. Here it is. No, um, <laughs> um, wow, that's it is actually very depleted. So Duboni is a fortified wine that the um, used to be treated. Uh, used in 19th century France to treat malaria. So I mean, it's strong and enough. so this is what she opted for as a just a, a quick beverage as the mixer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, gin was the gin was the spirit. Duboni was the mixer, and you put in a round ice cube and a wedge of lemon. One part gin, two parts Duboni. You stir it. You pray, and um, so gin and Duboni was her favorite, and. Yes, my friend Paul called it the Duboni and Clyde because the hangover robbed him of a full day of his life. And I had um I I I offered many at a Christmas party while I was writing this book. 
And a few months later, when I saw my friend Aoife again for a dinner party, I opened the door and the first thing she, the bar, this is four months later, the first thing she said to me was, don't you ever put one of those Queen Mother drinks in my hand again. They are potent. I, I mean, the thing is, after, you know, the first couple of sips, you know, when it, when all your life decisions flash before your eyes, um, you start to think, oh, this is quite warming and delicious. It's it's it's, it's a tricky drink, Kinsey, is what Ooh. I will say. But she, uh, I'll make it for you next time I see you. That'll just that will be happening. Um, <laughs> but it's absolutely delicious and lethal and deadly all at the same time. Well, let me know if I've crossed a line here. But is it okay to ask you what stories you told Lady Mary? that they loved that inspired you to write the book. Do you remember I, what stories those were? I don't. Um, I, I think the well, one... Okay, so if I were to ask you, pretend I'm Lady Mary and like the most beautiful woman <laughs> you've ever seen in your life and I don't need Spanx or a boob job. <laughs> pretend that right now, okay? And if I were to ask you, why do you love the Queen Mother? What example would you give me? I think the two stories I told, one was the one about Sir Frederick's bathroom. Uh, the one where she walks in, she's giving a tour of her home and she doesn't realize that her friend, Sir Frederick, um, has a very troubled stomach and is trapped trapped on the, the toilet and the Queen Mother flings the door open while she's doing the tour because this bathroom has a beautiful view over the Scottish cliffs uh, and she catches him right there on the toilet and without missing a beat she smiles to the guests and says this is Sir Frederick's bathroom and walks on and I think the other one, the serious one, I think it was something about you know how much she uh i think it was either i can't remember the serious one i think it was something during the blitz or yeah it was it was from one her time during the blitz um of just kind of the stoicism and i think i think oh it might have been that when she um i know do you know what i can't give the answer definitively in case i'm <laughs> in case i in case i look like i'm correcting my own memories but i it was definitely from her time as queen consort in the 1940s okay. and 1950s one thing I, I took away from the book was how um, incestuous it kind of felt, the small group of friends she had. Um, yeah. Is that typical? Because is that just typical in an aristocrat yes. kind of group? Yeah, it is. It is? Um, well, it's, it's, there's two reasons. You know, they all kind of know each other and, and the children then play with each other and the grandchildren play with each other. Part of it is that, you know, and she really was among, not the last generation, but among, the, really the, the, when that system ended was just before the Second World War. It didn't really recover after. But there was a whole season that was geared around debutantes come out at this time of year, and then um, young men meet young women. So, so their whole socializing was framed around each other. They all go hunting together. It was still a very closed, exclusive society. The aristocracy was a lot bigger then than it is today. Yeah, but it was also more insular, and in terms of her friendship circle, one of the reasons why you see the same names repeating over and over again, the same surnames of friends, partly it's because she was incredibly loyal to her friends, and when she found a friendship, she stuck with it. Mm. But the other reason was a bit sadder, which was this very big group, or what would have been a big group, um, was very female heavy in terms, you notice it's a lot more female friends than their tens, the, the names repeat. And that's because a lot of the young men that she grew up with were killed in the First World War. Yeah. So there were so there were a lot of deaths that that slimmed that group down. And it meant and you know, she says, she talks about, you know, there were 20 good friends that they all had before the First World War, and five of them came back. 
That's yeah, really horrendous. Oh, yeah, I it's awful. That. Um, also, when I'm reading through the book, it seems like, um, and I could be wrong, but was she late in the game when it came to finding a husband? Because it felt like some of her friends were married, had multiple children. And I was like, yeah. wait, she hasn't gotten engaged yet. That's what what's going yeah. on? Well, she was 22. Um, and there was, you came out as a debutante at 18. Oh. Um, and so the pressure, you kind of got a couple of years grace. Uh, and there were, look, as the 20s and 30s wore on, debutantes got engaged later and later. It was no longer normal that she got engaged at 18, 19. But she was part of a, you know, the, 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 one of the people she was at Hever with. Her friend Alexandra had had did get engaged at eighteen when she came out as a debutante, and by the time they were at Hever, she had married and had a baby. Yeah, and I think Elizabeth, that's exactly who I'm talking about. So that's yeah, it will be. I think it's Lady Bla- Yeah, I think it's Lady Blanford. Yeah, she is, and she she um she married into the Spencer Churchill family, and she was very she'd married well, which is how they put it. And Elizabeth was coming under pressure. You know, why are you not saying yes to any of these people? And I think part of it was that there had been quite a few men who were dazzled by her and, you know, she had, she, who were interested in her. But once Bertie started proposing, the rival sort of fell by the wayside. Well, and so and we later learned that that is a, that was a strategy that perhaps. Oh yeah. Mary sent them, them, Mary sent them to the four, Mary, Mary found them jobs at the, Queen Mary found them jobs at the four corners of the earth. Exactly. That's crazy. The most serious rival for Bertie all of a sudden received a fabulously well-paying job. But oh, by the way, you're needed on an oil field in Oklahoma immediately. Um, and he doesn't realize until he's in New York. He's like, wait, did Queen Mary have something to do with this? Um, I mean, you, you took do it such a great, you know, Chris had asked me, um, for those listening, my fiance, Chris had asked me if you were a good writer. And this story is exactly what I read to him when he asked me that. I was like, he's a great writer. I want you to listen to this oh, story. And um, it, I love the way you describe them thrusting him on a boat in January when, the <laughs> you know, it's crazy weather. And you yeah. talk about the their, their cocktails splashing back in their faces because the right the water is so crazy. And I was like, yes, he's a great writer. Listen to this. And I read him that passage. Um, but I thought that that was such a, I mean, hello. Yeah, absolutely. That was yeah. on purpose. He, so this guy, he was a younger son of the a Scottish aristocrat, the Earl of Moray. And he was a very dashing war hero, but of a player, I actually think Elizabeth dodged a bullet, yeah. but, yeah. Uh, or Mary, <laughs> Mary pushed her out of the way of said bullet. But yeah, it's, it's sort of, I've you know written books about an ocean liner before, and one of the things I learned was that really, unless you absolutely had to, you tried not to cross the Atlantic in December or January, because even if you went on like the real the massive luxury liners at that point, it would have been like the Olympic or the Majestic, like massive massive ships. Even they in the Atlantic storms would be pitching. You'd have your cocktail flung in your face. So you'd be like. Yeah, awful. So when they said to him, you need to be in Oklahoma really soon, can you get across in January? That might should have been probably his first warning sign. And he doesn't realize it until his ship reaches New York, this guy, James, Captain James Stewart, and he's staying with a friend on East 55th Street. And that's when the penny starts to drop because he, he finds out the guy who owns the oil company is the brother of one of Queen Mary's ladies-in-waiting. 
And it's only by the time the train's carrying him towards the the Oklahoma oil fields that James realizes he's been played. Queen takes pawn. But he doesn't he marry somebody that she he yeah, marries uh, her right. best friend. So does he, he go back? Does he go back or does she want so, to be with him in Oklahoma? No, he went back, but by that point Elizabeth had moved on to Bertie. And he um this is what's interesting is anytime a relationship doesn't work out in history, we always say that's the one that got away. Right. And with Elizabeth, everyone says, Gosh, you know, she and James are such a wonderful guy. James Strip was wonderful. When James Stewart realized that Elizabeth had moved on, he proposed to her best friend on, or one of her best friends on the day. You say one of her best friends because he cheated on her with the other. He cheated on her with the other one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He had cheated on her with um, her friend Molly, who Elizabeth uh, quite under, people would say years later, Elizabeth was never very nice to Molly. I'm like, yeah, fair. Um, (laughs) That's why Molly got the nickname Midnight Mall. And um, <laughs> Molly, Molly uh, was yeah, the one he cheated on. And then Lady Rachel Cavendish, he proposes um, on the day of Elizabeth's... Birthday, right? Know. Yeah, so he proposes um, when Elizabeth's engagement is announced. And he oh. marries Rachel on Elizabeth's birthday. So, like, just a really petty, petty man. Mm-hmm. So I think, and you know, I don't think James is the one that got away. I think good for Queen Mary for slingshotting him across the Atlantic at the worst time of year. Absolutely. And also, he got to New York, realized what was happening. He realized Queen Mary had played him. He still got on that train and went to Oklahoma and took the paycheck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. I, I did. It did seem based on what I read in Do Let's Have Another Drink that he kind of milked that, that he liked, oh, he wanted yeah. people to think he was the one that got away. He wanted people to think that that somebody intervened. But mm-hmm. but how much of that was looking at her life, her lifestyle, her title, her fame Absolutely. And, and just being envious of that? He wasn't sitting complaining about not having ended up with Molly Lassels, who probably was equally smitten with him in a different way. It's, it's look, there's always someone who has at some point dated someone who is famous, and they live off the social capital of that relationship for the rest of their lives. And it's particularly a problem for royal women. There tends to be, a you know, I dated her at this point, and then the guy kind of you know, tells the story, but then you tell the story so many times it doesn't quite have the just the tang it had the first time. So you start adding some more ingredients in, and well, it's not a good. Doesn't that story. tell us what a good man? I'm like, you know, I know people are going to disagree with me, but doesn't that tell us what a good man Andrew Parker Bowles is because he hasn't done that? Yeah, you jo- exactly. Look, discretion is the better part of valor, and you're you know it must be very difficult not to feel the urge either to spill private details to validate yourself or maybe um to start as i think james stewart did you're absolutely right start exaggerating them because it gives you a social capital and james stewart you know otherwise was someone who you know wasn't particularly happily married to rachel cavendish and um It's not always a great look to be someone who was a player and is still trying to be a player over the age of 50. You know, it's just, it's not a great look. So yeah, he absolutely did milk the story, 100%. You look so nice in this lighting, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. It's it's just the right level of you can see me, but not too much. Well, and it's the the, the beard and everything. This is a good look. Oh, thank you. 
Thank you. Um, you discuss the pressures to get married, you know, after oh. Deb's season, the, the countdown yeah. is on. But I don't I think I don't think that American women can relate to this, especially even celebrities. I don't know. There was a pressure on um, the queen mother as as a young woman to have a baby mm. almost immediately. And yeah. oh, yeah. she was criticized and kind of and 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 all so all of a sudden all these stories started and this gossip mm-hmm. started after it took her two years to get pregnant. Um, were there difficulties for her? I know that there are rumors, yeah. but were there difficulties? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what I say in the book. Look, sometimes you don't need to ascribe complicated conspiracy theories to things. You know, we would not say about anyone else. Were there problems because the first baby arrived two years into the marriage? We would consider that in some cases quite early. Right. Um, two years is not long. And the result, she had a daughter in 1926 and she had another in 1930. And because the, the first pregnancy didn't arrive for two years, um, years and years later, people claimed that there were, that, you know, initially people said he was impotent and then the baby arrived. So they were wrong about that. So they had to find something else. And years and years later, they claimed that um, the the future queen and Princess Margaret had been uh, conceived through artificial insemination. And obviously there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but it is worth pointing out that, um, artificial insemination in Britain really did not take off until the 1940s. So this is too early for it. Mm-hmm. And even if we assume that there was somehow an exception made for the royals, it was, it still is a very imprecise science. And it was, and you imagine what that was like in the 1930s and 1920s. It's also fairly uncommon for a couple to after, I don't know, 18 months, think, okay, we're going to go down the artificial insemination route at a time when it's not practiced in Britain. There's not a lot of science on it. There's not a lot of idea that it might be potentially um, safe or or otherwise. And also just in general at the time, there there was not completely wrong science that artificial insemination was harmful to the man. There There was a lot of very quacky science about it. But basically this idea has persisted and persisted. And it's interesting that, as you say, we just, you know, if part of it was a pressure, part of it couldn't understand why she hadn't had a child within a year. And it, to me, that was just fascinating when I, when I, because I'd heard of this story before and I thought, wait, like she, two years and this was the conclusion people reached. Right. Um, yeah. So it's sometimes I think you have to stop thinking of royalty and famous people as um, magnets to the improbable. And just if you have a think about what the most logical conclusion is, it's usually the one. Um, and it was that, you know, she got pregnant two years into the marriage. That you know through the traditional route, <laughs> that old traditional method. That old, that old Chad route. I'm wondering. I guess I'm asking too. Is was there a sense of pressure on them to quickly have a baby, even though he was the spare at the time? I feel like there'd be more pressure on on his brother. Right. Edward. Well, this is re- this is really interesting. So the future Elizabeth II very nearly was not born at all. When her mother was pregnant with Elizabeth, the future Elizabeth II, she was the future. The Queen Mother was the future Queen Mother. Was involved in a car crash. Her she was out being driven one day, and a motor slammed into the side of her car when she was about five or six months pregnant. And luckily, she was completely fine, and so was the the unborn child that later became Elizabeth II. 
But what was really interesting was I read in a socialite's diary while I was researching this that somebody, they were at a dinner party when this was the story was being retold that week. And someone around the dinner table went, oh, thank God, the entire hope of the empire could have been lost. Yeah, and what was, But what was really interesting was he says, it's so fascinating to me that they already assume the Prince of Wales won't marry and have children or that he won't last very long as king. Why were they saying in 1926 around the upper class dinner party circuits, oh, if the Duchess of York had a miscarriage, that's the future hope of the empire gone. So I think there was a sense within high society, those who knew David, the future King Edward VIII, that this was a man who at that point seemed more uh, interested in getting into bed with somebody else's wife than he did with finding a wife of his own. And there, it's that's 10 years before the abdication crisis, and that talk was already happening around the table. So I think there definitely was pressure put on them to conceive. But what I will say is if it was possible, or if they had been using um, things like artificial insemination, or if they had been able to get pregnant um, without sort of recourse to more um, natural or traditional um, means of conception, it's really interesting that Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon only had two pregnancies. Because certainly there was a hope or a pressure that she would produce a boy. Mm. Wow, and I never thought about that. Yeah, that there, you know, that it was, um, and there, you know, Princess Margaret said that after their uncle abdicated, Elizabeth, her sister, prayed that their mother might have a, a a later pregnancy and that there would be a boy, so that Elizabeth wouldn't have to have the duty of being heiress to the throne. So I think there was pressure. Absolutely, it's sort of to Bertie and Elizabeth's credit; they just did not give into it, and and both of them were very happy with the unit of four that they had us four, being, yeah. us four yeah very very happy family life i i wonder if there wasn't a third because i can't imagine how much stress you're under realizing that all of a sudden you have it's the on most you. difficult yeah. job in the world i mean and on top of the speech impediment and the war mm. i mean i really don't know when you find yeah, time I, to procreate i think i would be like i need a break that's absolutely it and i also think that they they weren't they didn't put themselves under pressure because even at that stage even at sort of 10 11 12 the parents were quite convinced as was queen mary that lilibet was extraordinary mm. and they were they were and they and they immediately started the minute they became king and queen they started changing uh, lilibet's um the future elizabeth ii's uh curriculum so she was studying history studying constitutional precedent and law uh, right. So and, th that I just want to say, because I meant to ask you, I was thinking about this when I, you know, I was thinking about this earlier today when I was planning on talking to you. Um, I know we go back and forth about the crown all the time and how not everything is accurate. But what spoke to me about the Anne Boleyn story was, you know, this idea that she was fascinated by another, you know, another person mm -hmm. in history. She was fascinated by history. She was fascinated by this home. And yeah. um, you just said that it was important to all of them that Lilibet have this education. So right. I think that I, I guess I, you know, it, how frustrating that the crown makes it look like she just is just the loosey goosey mm. queen mom that does not want that, that is not insistent on education. Cause that's, I, I think we all love season one and season two, but that's the first time that that struck me that that was inaccurate as I was reading. Yeah. The book, that was the first time I thought, well, then that's not, that, that's another 
part of the crown that's not true. Well, the Queen Mother has always been the one, was probably the canary down the coal mine with accuracy, with that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think, look, actually, in fairness, Queen, in fairness to them, Queen Mary did complain that her daughter-in-law didn't push the two princesses as hard as Mary would like. Mary really was phenomenally well-read, loved history, loved learning. Her idea of a treat for the girls was to take them to, her granddaughters was to take them to a museum. Um, Whereas their mother's idea was if they've done their lessons, they can go out and play. What's interesting is the scene that you see in season one of The Crown where Elizabeth, played by Claire Foy, confronts her mother, played by Victoria Hamilton, and says, my education was woefully inaccurate. That conversation did take place, but not with Elizabeth, with Margaret. It was Princess Margaret who really felt very hard done by, Mm. that her parents had so clearly prioritised her elder sister's education. And Margaret actually was a bit like uh, her mother and her grandmother was quite interested in history and, and, and art and the history of the monarchy in particular. So she would have loved to have had those lessons that her elder sister got. So there was a bit of resentment from Margaret, but not from Elizabeth II. Oh, that's so fascinating. Okay, well, I thank you so much for your time. How much time no, have I taken over the me. last the last few weeks? Not I've nearly seen... enough, a blink of an eye. Congratulations on all of the book success. Do Let's Have Another Drink uh, is now physically available you can go grab it in a bookstore you can order it on amazon and it'll show up at your door the next day um and it is such a great read it's so fun i mean how often do you you close a book and say this was so fun to read i enjoyed this and you get such a better uh sense of who this woman was and i love i love young elizabeth that to me was one of the most fun parts yeah traveling all all over the world with her and that was so beautiful so thank you for sharing this with us I know it was a lot of hard work well it was also yeah it was hard work but it was also a wonderful story how lucky was I to tell the story of someone who began in a stately home in the Edwardian period went to jazz age high society Paris was there in the 1930s in political scandals the blitz the 1950s was partying with Elizabeth Taylor in the 1960s was partying with the golden girls in the 1980s and lived into the age of the internet like it was a it was a wonderful wonderful life story to write about and to share I know she would have loved this book Gareth oh thank you that's very kind Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily Podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers.